Well, we've been thinking for some time on Sunday morning about the verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, that says, To those of you who believe, Jesus is precious. To those of you who believe, Jesus is precious. And we've been thinking about the being of Jesus himself, his very being, his very character as being precious. Uh, We've talked about his names being precious. Uh, We've talked about his sacrifice being precious. And now we're thinking about his love. His love for us is precious. It's valuable. It's important. It's cherished. And so today I would like us to think about the love, the love of Jesus reflected in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, if you will. This is the longest prayer of Jesus recorded for us in the Gospels. And here Jesus primarily prays for his disciples and all those who would believe as a result of their message. So in effect, Jesus is praying for believers. He begins, however, in the opening verses in praying for himself. And so, Lord willing, this morning I would like us to focus on verses 1 through 5. But put yourself for a moment in the disciples' shoes. They have witnessed Jesus' ministry for over three years. They have been with him. They have seen him do all manner of miracle, all kinds of signs and wonders. And they do believe he has been sent from God the Father. They believe that God is working in him and through him. They believe that when Jesus speaks... God is speaking. And the works of Jesus represent the works of God. They really believe. Now Jesus has taken them aside in what we call the upper room discourse. John chapters 13 through 17. And Jesus has been instructing his disciples, preparing them for his departure. And what a fitting way to end this period of instruction, uh, other than as we have here, to pray, to pray for them. How do you feel when someone takes the time To pray for you. Makes you feel good. Makes you feel special. When someone comes along, or perhaps as a group, uh, we mention your name in prayer because maybe you have certain uh, prayer requests or certain petitions that you want brought before the throne of grace. And it's it's so uplifting. It's so encouraging to hear people pray for you. Whether it's relative to your job or something relative to your family or your health or whatever it might be. Even just to hear people pray for, for your spiritual growth. Just to pray that you'd have a greater love for God and you'd be zealous to keep his commandments. That's always encouraging when someone else prays for us. So let's look at John chapter 17, the gospel of John chapter 17. Let me read verses 1 through 5. Uh, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father... Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before 
the world was. So I had an outline. What did I do? Oh, yeah, here. So let me put my outline up. And let's try to work through these uh, five verses. I've simply entitled the message, Jesus loves his disciples. He prays for himself and for them. It seems like in these opening verses, Jesus is praying for himself. So he says, the hour has come. The hour has come. The decisive moment for which Jesus has come into this world, the critical moment. You might say the hour of testing, the most difficult moment, the most trying moment. Perhaps the most special moment for Jesus has now come. If you will, let's just go back because there's a little theme here about the hour. Jesus' hour. So if you will, just go back to chapter 2 for a moment and notice some of these verses in the Gospel of John. God's timing is always right. God's timing is always perfect. And nothing is going to happen to Jesus except what God allows and what God permits. God is still in control. Even when Jesus goes to the cross, even when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers take him away and they have these trials, various trials, uh, both before Caiaphas, the high priest, and Pilate and Herod, they have these various trials. God is still in control. Even when Jesus is being crucified, God is still in control. Okay, if you're there in uh, chapter 2, notice uh, verse uh, 4. This is the account of the uh, wedding feast that Jesus attended and his mother was there. Jesus said to her, Woman, what uh, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That's probably a reference to that that difficult hour of trial and testing when Jesus was going to be crucified. If you will, go to chapter 7. Chapter 7 and verse 30. Chapter 7 and verse 30. So then they sought to take Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So there was an attempt to take Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him. Uh, Perhaps this was the desire to take Jesus and make him king, uh, but no one dared lay a hand on him. His hour had not yet come. In other words, God has a special plan, a special purpose for Jesus, and that has to be fulfilled. Nothing nothing is going to happen to Jesus uh, a minute before it's supposed to happen, because God is in charge. If you will, go to chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 20. Uh, chapter 8, verse 20. Uh, These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Of course, we know throughout the Gospel of John, the the Jewish leaders were very antagonistic. At times, they wanted to lay hands on him, not not for a good purpose, not to make him king, but sometimes they wanted to lay hands on him to uh, do him harm and, and, and have him put to death. And then let's go to chapter 12. We have another reference here. Chapter 12 and verse 20. Let me just begin here. Chapter 12 and verse 20. <clears throat> now there were certain Greeks among those who uh, came up to worship at the t- feast. And then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked Jesus, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip came and told Andrew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So as you see all these previous verses, nobody could lay hands on Jesus, nobody could touch him, nobody could do anything, whether to make him king by force because people liked him or the the opposing 
forces that wanted to take Jesus and kill him. No one could do anything before the time. But now Jesus says, my hour has come. And then verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And in some ways that's somewhat analogous to what happened to Jesus. Jesus must die. He must go to the cross. But through going to the cross and being raised from the dead, there's going to be a great harvest of fruit. Many will believe in Jesus. Many will follow Jesus. And both Jesus will be glorified and God the Father will be glorified. And then, if you will, just go to chapter 13. Chapter 13, just flip the page. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now before, this is 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now let's go back to chapter 17. Here's this prayer of Jesus, primarily on behalf of his disciples. And again, I say that this prayer, in and of itself, just shows us how much Jesus loves us, how much he loves his disciples, how much he loves all those who are going to believe on him through their word. So the hour has come. The hour has come that Jesus should go to the cross, be crucified, and be raised from the dead, and then ascend back to God the Father. The great plans of God are unfolding for Jesus. So now let's go to point number two. Notice Jesus' request in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Father, glorify your Son. Honor your Son. Show the utmost respect and esteem and love and devotion for your Son at this critical moment. Now at first, that might seem kind of selfish. Jesus is saying to the Father, Father, glorify, honor your Son. Lift your Son up. Make your Son exalted. But notice the rest of the verse. There's a purpose here. Jesus prays, glorify your son, honor your son, lift up your son. That, for the purpose that, in order that, your son also may glorify you. You see, when the son is exalted, when Jesus is exalted, and when Jesus is lifted up, when Jesus is shown to be who he really is, God the Father is glorified. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 23? Jesus said that it's the will of God the Father that all should honor the Son in the same way that they honor God the Father. He who honors the Son honors God. He who does not honor the Son really doesn't honor God the Father. So while at first it might seem odd that Jesus is praying, Father, glorify your Son. But when you read the full verse and you read Jesus' intent or Jesus' purpose, it makes full sense. It makes complete sense. Because when Jesus is honored, God the Father is honored. When Jesus is dishonored and disrespected and rejected, God the Father is disrespected and dishonored. Because God is at work through Jesus. God sent Jesus. People honor Jesus. It shows their love and devotion to God the Father. So, there's this great goal here. Jesus has a passion. He has a a burning, a desire, a yearning to honor and glorify God his Father. And he knows for that to be achieved, he has to be honored. He has to be glorified. So that's why Jesus prays what he prays here. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may honor and glorify and exalt and lift you up and magnify your name. Now we notice here, 
What's going to happen as the Gospel of John unfolds and as is recorded in all the Gospels, Jesus will glorify God the Father. How? Through obedience and suffering. Jesus must needs go to the cross. Jesus must needs be crucified. He will be crucified who will be, in some sense, as far as the world is concerned, it looks like Jesus is being dishonored. He's being disgraced. But ultimately, in this this seemingly dishonor and seeming disgrace, Jesus is honoring God the Father. How so? He's obeying God. He's obeying His Father. If you will, go back to, uh, or just go forward if you will. Keep your finger in John 17, but go to Philippians chapter 2 for a moment. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Here we're we're reminded of the suffering of Jesus. We're reminded of of his obedience to the will of God the Father. And it was through this obedience that he glorified, he honored God. In the same way with us, we will only honor and glorify God through obedience. And if that means suffering, so be it. Notice uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind, let this attitude, let this outlook... Let this disposition be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, the form of a slave, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient. He became obedient to God the Father. He became obedient to the will of God to the point of death. He was so determined to do the will of God, he was even to die to do the will of God. And the text says here that Jesus became obedient to the point of death, but not just any kind of death and dying, even the death of the cross. And you recall how Jesus cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if possible, take this cup, this cup of suffering away from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we need to keep in mind that for Jesus to be glorified, he had to go through suffering. And that suffering was a test of his obedience. Jesus' obedience to the Father was strong, resolute, determined, and unwavering. And we cannot help but notice the exaltation of Jesus as well. So Jesus says in verse 4, I have in fact glorified you on the earth. I have honored you. I have lifted up your name on the earth. And that's because Jesus did the will of God. He was obedient all throughout his ministry. He showed us what God is like by all those miracles that he did. He says, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And I suppose that anticipates going to the cross, being raised from the dead. And then he says in verse 5, And now, O Father... Glorify me. So there it is again. Same as in verse 1. Glorify me. But it's a little different. Glorify me together with yourself. So now Jesus envisions being glorified and the Father being glorified. We both want to be glorified. Father, glorify me so that you might be glorified as well as the sense here. Father, glorify me. Honor me. Together with yourself. With the glory. With the splendor. With the majesty. With the respect which I had with you. Before the world was. But when you read that, there's a lot there that strikes us about the, the greatness of Jesus. He existed before the world was created. 
He existed before the universe came into being. And before the universe came into being, he was with God the Father. That harks back to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So now Jesus is asking here, essentially as I read this, it looks like Jesus is asking, beyond the cross, beyond the grave, beyond the suffering of crucifixion that he might be on it. Don't forget, the cross in itself honors and glorifies God the Father. Jesus is being lifted up as that final all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins in obedience to God the Father. The cross itself, the suffering of Jesus itself, honors and glorifies God because that was God's will for Jesus. But also his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father also honors Jesus. Now, notice, if you will, go back to uh, Philippians. Uh, I should have read the whole, the rest of it, but Philippians chapter 2. Um, if you want to turn there, go ahead, or else if you just want to listen. But uh, following Jesus' uh, obedience to the will of God the Father, even at the point of death, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 goes on to say, Therefore God has also, what? Highly exalted Jesus. God has highly exalted him. Here is God the Father giving Jesus the honor and the glory that Jesus had before the world was. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus, highly glorified Jesus, highly honored Jesus, and given Jesus the name which is above every name. Perhaps that's the name of Jesus, which means salvation. Perhaps it's the name Lord. In any event, at that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whenever anyone acknowledges Jesus to be Lord, crucified, risen from the dead, the exalted, invincible Lord over all, God the Father is honored. God the Father is glorified. And then if you will... Uh, we can't have not help but notice uh, Hebrews. I uh, just notice, if you will, Hebrews chapter one. Jesus being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's person, and upholding all things by the word of His power. When Jesus had by Himself purged our sins, what did He do? What happened? He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. That's God the Father honoring and glorifying His Son so that in turn, God the Father might be glorified as well. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 10, that's uh, Hebrews 1 verse 3 if you're taking notes. And then also you can put down Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10 verse uh, 12 and 13. Uh, But this man Jesus, after He had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, what did He do? He sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies be made his footstool. And then in chapter 12, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, that's what we Christians do, we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy of being raised from the dead, the joy of being exalted to the right hand of God the Father, the joy of having all these people believe in him and honor him, for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross. He endured the cross. He endured crucifixion. He endured suffering, despising all of the shame and the suffering associated with the cross, and now has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus has been given honor and glory. And then I cannot help but think of the words of Revelation chapter 5, because that's a scene of Jesus in heaven on the throne with God the Father. 
And the scene there uh, is a scene of all these angelic hosts. And the Apostle John says, And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, around the throne of God, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands of thousands. So there's these myriads and myriads of beings, angelic beings, all worshiping God. And this is what they say. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as is in the sea and all that is in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, forever and ever. Back to John 17. Perhaps you're still there. John 17. So Jesus prays, Father, glorify me that I may in turn honor and glorify you. In verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me, honor me, exalt me, lift me up together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's probably a reference to the uh, resurrection, the exaltation, the ascension of Jesus And Jesus being, you might say, restored to sitting on the throne with God the Father Almighty and all things being entrusted to Him, to His care for us. So there's an example. There's an example here for us as well. Even as Jesus was passionate about obeying God the Father, so we should be passionate as well. Let's go to my uh, last point here. Jesus gives eternal life. We've kind of worked around these verses here for a moment. So now what's interesting in verse 2... Uh, Jesus says as part of his prayer to be glorified, that the Father might be glorified. He says in verse 2, Father, as you have given him, the Son, Jesus, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So God the Father has honored his Son by giving Jesus authority, the right to rule over all human beings, so that Jesus himself has the prerogative and the right to give the gift of eternal life to as many as who believe on him. So in this way, God the Father, God the Father, let me just drop my notes down here, God the Father is honoring the Son. The Father honors the Son. He gives him that right, that prerogative to dispense the gift of eternal life to whomever he will. This is a cast in the, in the midst of this request that Jesus makes for him to be honored. He's requesting to be honored. And then I'm getting down to the idea that the community of believers, that's us, we are a gift from God the Father to God the Son. Uh, notice that. As many as, uh, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So all believers represent a gift from God the Father to God the Son. We have been given by God to the Son as a gift. And then Jesus is working in us to glorify the Father by getting together this group of believers. The group of believers, you might say all disciples, all believers in Christ, is that special community that has been given the gift of eternal life by Jesus Christ so that we end up honoring and glorifying God the Father. Well, how do we do that? Well, we spend the rest of our lives jumping up and down saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you've given me the gift of eternal life. Lord, thank you that that gift of eternal life came through your son, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. God, I praise you that your love was communicated through your son, Jesus. We end up spending all of our lives praising and worshiping Jesus Christ as well as God the Father Almighty in heaven. And so both the Father and the Son are to be glorified in and through the believing community. 
Verse 2 again, as you, God the Father, have given Jesus authority over all flesh, that he, Jesus, should give eternal life to as many as you, the Father, have given to Jesus. Verse 3, and this is eternal life. This is the essence of eternal life. This is the meaning of eternal life. This is the significance of eternal life. That they, all believers in Christ who have this gift, may know you, may recognize you, may respect you, may honor you, adore you, and love you, and serve you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one whom you have sent into this world. Isn't that the essence of eternal life? Knowing God. It's not just some sort of intellectual, cognitive thing that goes on so we can just spit out facts about God. No, it's more than that. It's it's experiencing God. Tasting His love manifested in Christ as we believe in Jesus and experience the forgiveness of sins and the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. To know God is, is not only to experience God, it's to enjoy God, to enjoy His love for us, to enjoy His protection, His power in our lives, to enjoy the fact that He's transforming us and changing us into Christ's likeness. And so we are that special community that enjoys the gift of eternal life given to us by God, given to us by Jesus Himself. Jesus has the prerogative, the right to give us that gift. And in the, this gift... We have the wonderful privilege, the wonderful blessing to really know God, to enjoy God. We recognize God for who He is. And keep in mind, when John wrote this, it was a very pagan world. A lot of people worshipped a lot of false gods and a lot of uh, false religion was going on. And Jesus is making clear in this prayer that we have the privilege of knowing the only true God, the real God, the right God. And so as the disciples, let's just for a moment, let's just close with this thought here. So as the disciples were listening, now don't forget, Jesus is praying this prayer. It's addressed to God the Father, but all of his disciples around, they're all listening. They're all hearing it. And it probably wouldn't hurt us to ask, well, what might they be thinking as they hear Jesus pray these words? Wow, they might be saying, wow. Jesus, Jesus, the way he prays, he, he acts like he's one with God the Father. He acts like he's equal with God. He acts like he deserves the same honor, the same glory, the same respect as God the Father Almighty deserves. And if that's what they're thinking, they're absolutely correct. (laughs) Jesus does deserve the same honor and glory as God the Father deserves. And then they might be thinking too, wow, I'm a gift. I'm a gift from God the Father to Jesus. I'm the one who has been given uh, from the Father to God the Son. And Jesus has given me this this great, wonderful privilege to know, to recognize the only true God and to honor and to enjoy, not just anybody, but I'm getting to enjoy the Son of God. Imagine how privileged these disciples were to be able to spend time with Jesus on earth. We never had that privilege. Very few people have had that privilege. Even, Even people who were alive when Jesus was alive, very few people had spent the same amount of time with Jesus as the disciples spent with Jesus. They had a front row seat at all of the signs and miracles. They saw so much, they heard so much. Wow, what a privileged group of people. And I believe as Christians today, we should realize how privileged we are to have received the gift of eternal life from Jesus, all part of God's will, and to be part of that very special community that intends and has been called into existence to honor and glorify the Son, as well as to honor and glorify God the Father Almighty. Let's pray. Lord, use these verses to encourage us, 
by Jesus' example. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for Jesus' testimony while on earth. He had no greater desire to glorify your name. And to do that, he had to be glorified himself. And so, Lord, give us that same passion, that same desire, that same yearning to glorify you, to honor you through obedience, to honor you and glorify you through honoring and glorifying your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Life has no greater meaning, no greater significance. And I pray, Lord, when we come to the end of our life, we might be able to say, as Jesus said, I have glorified you upon the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Lord, may that be my testimony. May that be my legacy as well. Use this Bible lesson and these words in the Gospel of John to speak to all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn this morning is uh, one of great news. Uh, All the way my Savior leads me. The Savior who loved me, the Savior who died for me, is the Savior who lives for me. And he leads me all the way through my earthly pilgrimage and my earthly journey. He will always be with me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. Hymn number 407. Hymn number 407. All the way my Savior leads me. And let's sing all three stanzas. All three stanzas. Hymn number 407. Let's stand as we sing.